1: Welcome to the program. It's Monday, the start of a brand new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the word to stand on for life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions. Questions about stuff going on in your life, anything and everything, you need only to call us, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630 5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at com, or use our free Country Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. A couple of quick announcements and then we'll get right to some questions. Um, tonight we are going to resume our Monday Bible studies, men's, women's, and youth Bible studies here at 7 o'clock. Everybody gathers together for worship at 7, and then after worship, they go their separate ways. Tonight, ladies, Elvira Garcia uh, will be sharing her heart. Uh, She is the wife of Pastor Chris Garcia. I've had him on the radio program. Actually, I've had both of them on the radio show uh, before. But uh, Chris is the pastor that we sent out to plant a church in Michoacan, Mexico. And um, uh, Elvira's daughter just had their first grandchild or a grandchild. And uh, so she's been here for about a month. Chris was here for a couple of weeks. He had to go back. Uh, but uh, if you uh, really want to hear how tough it can be to go plant a church anywhere, let alone in Michoacan, Mexico, uh, tonight will be a, a blessing. And, and her heart is just... Uh, so filled with joy, and yet even through all of the difficulties, um, this will be the real story, and I think you'll enjoy it. So that's tonight here at 7 o'clock. Hope you had a great weekend in church. We did. Uh, we keep saying to each other, Paula and I and me and some of the other pastors here, where are all these new people coming from? So many new people. Got to meet some people from the radio program. Uh, Phil came by yesterday and and some others who are just regular listeners uh so new people are 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 coming in. We were packed, and uh well i don 't think the message was very good yesterday it was um I felt a lot of pressure. it was so long, and I only have a short period of time so um, um but of course, the Lord always does what he's gonna do with his word. We just teach through it, so um hope your services were also a blessing, and you had opportunities to use the spiritual gifts that God has given you. Let me go to some questions, and then we will wait for your phone calls. Zach wants to know, what exactly constitutes a marriage in God's eyes? Zach, a marriage in God's eyes. Now, I don't know what the what the reason you're asking this is, um, but a marriage in God's eyes is, is this, one that is uh, um, a marriage committed to him, uh, a marriage that meets the legal standards of the time, the culture, and the country that you live in. You know, in, in, in the New Testament days and, and, and beyond that, um, the uh, a marriage was, uh, there would be a ceremony, a man and a woman would come together. There was no legal paperwork back then. It was just, uh, they would come together and that, that meant they were married. But we live in a time, Zach, where uh, people need to be married legally, with a license, uh, complying with the law, Um, But it's a marriage, a real marriage in God's eyes is a marriage that's committed to the will of God for the heart of God. And I would add with the heart of God as well. So that's a marriage. I don't think it's a tricky question uh, other than um, marriage uh, is legal. Paul and I were always running into people who are not married, but they're living together. And we always tell them, you know, we want you to be in a place where God can bless the relationship where at least you're not rebelling against God. Uh, but the idea that you can just live with somebody, you can just shack up and and God's going to be okay with it because you're committed to one another, uh, is not true, Zach, and it is a sin. So whatever the reason that you're asking the question might be, uh, a marriage is a man and a woman to becoming one and hopefully um, committing their lives to the service of Jesus Christ. So that's what a marriage is. Uh, you can't just say we're married in God's eyes. You can't say, well, you know, we've got um, money coming in and if we got married that money would decrease so God understands. He doesn't. He wants you to trust Him. He wants you to, uh, to be obedient in the law. So... um Zach, I hope that answers your question. If you need any more uh, specific information, maybe you can give me a little bit more information uh, regarding why you're asking. Here's a question from Janie. She wants to know, how do you reconcile the discrepancies in the Gospels like the number of angels at the tomb? And there are a few others. Um, Jamie, there's no discrepancies. There's differences in the reporting. But a discrepancy connotes um error. Um it it, it it suggests that there are contradictions uh in in the scriptures and that's simply not true. Uh the one that you pointed out, uh one of the gospel accounts talks about two angels while the other at Jesus' tomb, while the under, others only talk about one. And and that's not a discrepancy or a contradiction at all. It's just that the the person reporting it, is is like on the outside looking in, and one of them is is focusing on the angel that spoke. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? And the other one is just looking at a bigger picture and stepping back, and saying, "Now there were two angels. Now consider this, Janie. If you and I were speaking." Uh, and and uh, somebody came up and joined us, and we're talking. And somebody who knew you or who knew me would would come along, and they'd write in their in their uh, diary or something that, well, I saw Janie and Pastor On, and they were talking. And somebody else might look at that same situation. They don't know us. And they could say, uh, well, I saw Janie and Pastor On and somebody else. So there were three people that were there talking. That's not a discrepancy. That's just different perspectives. And the fact that there are those different perspectives in the gospel accounts lends authority and credibility to the truth of those stories. If if they were word for word alike, um, that would be almost impossible with different personalities, and we, we also need to remember that all four of the gospel uh, writers had a different um, purpose in writing their gospel. They were all uh, giving different presentations of Jesus Christ. So Matthew's gospel is, is far more Jewish. Uh, this was written to fulfill the scriptures. Um, or, or this this happened to fulfill the scriptures. Uh, Mark's gospel presents Jesus uh, as a servant. Uh, I didn't come to be served, but rather to serve. Luke's gospel presents Jesus as human, the man, Christ Jesus. And John's gospel presents Jesus fully in his deity. Uh, and so with different purposes and different perspectives, Uh, The fact that there are some differences in the observations actually lends credibility. Now, there are no contradictions. And I've been through the New Testament so many times, there are no contradictions at all. It's just different perspective. And I hope that makes sense. I get this, Janie, from people who, and you've written before, so I know this isn't you, but... Uh, I've gotten this, people say, well, how do you deal with all of the contradictions in the Bible? These are not contradictions at all. They're just different perspectives looking at the same incident. Good question, Janie. Thank you very, very much. Bill wants to know, Pastor Ron, the woman caught in adultery, Jesus said not to cast stones if you were a sinner. Does that mean we cannot call someone on a sin because we are sinners? Um, No, Bill, it doesn't mean that at all. A couple of things. Um, Remember, in in the story, the woman caught in adultery, she was caught in the very act of the adultery and yet conspicuously absent from the story is the man she was caught in adultery with. So clearly, from the beginning, there was a double standard. Now, the implication very clearly in this story is that this was a setup. They set this man up because they were going to bring Jesus uh, into the picture, they were trying to catch him uh, in 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 a tough spot where he didn't have any right answers. The, the religious leaders were always trying to do that. And so um, you'll you remember in the story in particular, Jesus, um, seeing their hypocrisy, he bent down and started to write in the dirt. And then interesting, it says, from the oldest to the youngest, they all began to leave. Now, I think, and this is a little bit of an imposition on the text, Bill, but I think that this was a woman who was a very public um, prostitute. Uh, and I think probably Jesus was writing maybe names and dates. You were with this woman on this date at this time. You were with this woman on this date and this time. And when they saw the the, uh, the, the, the comment, whatever Jesus was writing, it was like, oh, I, I better go now. And and uh, having Jesus exposed them and said, if you are without sin, here's the stone, take the rock. Uh, and of course, no one was there who could do it. Now, for us, Bill, uh, we're supposed to judge fruit. We're not ever supposed to judge hearts, but we're supposed to judge fruit. So it is our obligation, if you see a Christian brother or a sister who is in sin, we're obligated to confront them in love with that sin. One of the most unloving things we could do is let somebody hang around the church and pretend that everything is okay when in fact we know or or maybe everybody else knows that this person is living a duplicitous life. So we have the obligation to call someone on a sin, in exactly the same way, Bill, you should be happy if somebody calls you out if you're in sin. Uh, somebody sees you, and I, Bill, this isn't personal either, but somebody sees you drunk someplace, somebody needs to call you out on that. If somebody sees you angry and yelling at your wife or your children, they need to call you out on that. Brother, let's step aside and talk about this. You ought not to do that. Maybe uh, somebody... Um, gets word that you're gossiping about them. Um, You need to be called out on that. And the reason it's good for you is because that enables us to get right so we can stay right with the Lord. But there's nothing good ever that happens, Bill, when we just sort of go through the motions and pretend that sin doesn't exist. Um, We've got to call it out. Uh, You remember uh, the Apostle Paul called out a man, uh, and I believe a wealthy, influential man in the church at Corinth, who was sleeping with his uh, stepmother. Uh, I don't know if the father was dead. I don't know. We don't know any details, but he was having sex with his stepmother. And Paul said, and you in Corinth, you in the church, you know about this and you haven't already cast judgment on such a man. And then Paul very clearly says, I already have cast judgment on this man. I've handed him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. So that's what we've got to do. We've got to call people on their sin. And when we do it, Bill, be prepared to be called names. Oh, you're judging me. Uh, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. Who do you think you are calling me out? you, you, you got to be prepared to lose friends. But you're doing the most loving thing. The one friend that you won't lose is Jesus. So um, we have that obligation, Bill, to call people out when they're sinning. That doesn't mean we go around sin sniffing. It doesn't mean that we, uh, you know, we check everybody out and make sure they're not sinning. Uh, what we do is we simply, if we see something, then we've got to pull somebody aside and love them enough to tell them the truth. You know, Bill, over the years, there are people who have presumed that, that, uh, uh, and, and usually, you know, Paul writes to the pure, all things are pure, and conversely, to somebody who is not pure, um, there's nothing that's pure. Um, and they presume that maybe they, they thought that they knew something about me. And I always respond the same way. If you know that I'm guilty of sin, then you owe it to God and you owe it to me to tell me what that sin is, to confront me with it. And if I'm caught, I'll repent. But it's never that way. It's just that they disagreed with something I was doing or the way we were we were doing things here at the church or something. And just tell them, all of them, look, when I'm in sin, you come to me. But if there's no sin, don't you dare come to me. And try to convince me that you know better than I do what the direction of this church is. So, um, Bill, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. uh, But we need to be sure that we love people enough to tell them the truth. That's a good question, Bill. Thank you very, very much. Hey, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Michael M. Michael says, I feel called to be a pastor But my past is such that I don't think I could ever be above reproach. Should I give up on that dream? Michael, God specializes in people like you and me. Um, Quick story. My church knows this story. One of the men that was instrumental in in bringing me to Christ. Paul, of course, was one praying for me. But this was a man who was a Christian. And I thought a very mature Christian at the time. Uh, Of course, every, every Christian was more mature than I was. But when I got saved... Um, this man started sort of uh, discipling me, he and another guy. And uh, uh, when I was six months in the Lord, just six months in the Lord, um, I, I knew I was called to be a pastor. Um, I was listening to the radio and traffic jam coming home from work. And it was Raul Reese, as a matter of fact, teaching from uh, First Timothy. And he's talking about the role of pastors. And it was almost as though Jesus was in the car with me. That's how profound it was. And it was as though he said, listen, because this is what I've got planned for you. And so when I, I started asking around, well, I didn't know what a pastor did. I mean, I'm only six months old in the Lord. I wasn't raised in church. And I remember very clearly asking this guy. He said, you know, I, I'm, I, I think God's called me to be a pastor. And he looked at me and he just laughed and mocked me. He said, are you kidding? You're lucky you got saved. God could never use you to be a pastor. Well, 27 years pastoring, I think. Um, I'll go with God rather than with him. So don't give up on your dreams. Something else I want you to remember. Your past is gone. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Your sins are forgiven, forgotten, and buried in the deepest, darkest ocean. Leave them there and live your life from this point forward above reproach. Do the best that you can with a heart that's always able to be examined by the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and as I said, Michael, you're, you're the kind of guy that Jesus specializes in. Um, God didn't choose you because you were smart. He didn't choose you because you were holy. Uh, he didn't choose you um, for any other reason than, than he could be glorified if there's a great work and a lot of fruit that comes from you. Believe me, everybody who knows you, God is going to get the glory. So never give up on your calling. I don't like that you called it a dream. If that's your calling, never give up. God qualifies those he calls and then he equips you in the process to do the work. So let me add just this one other thing, Michael. If you're called to be a pastor, devour your Bible. Devour your Bible. Fall so in love with God's word that it is inseparable. You can't imagine going a day without it. Uh, you take it with you everywhere you go. You're living it. You're, you're constantly searching the scriptures. Um, that's the sign of a true pastor. And then ask Jesus through prayer continually. Ask him continually to help you really fall in love with the people for whom he died. And Michael, it's a great, great job, great calling. And um, don't miss out. Don't miss out. Here's a question from Kevin. Kevin. Uh, he wants to know, how would I sum up our purpose for being alive as Christians? Kevin, that's an easy question. Revelation chapter 4.11 says that our lives are created for Him, by Him, and and literally, um, in the Greek, it's toward Him, meaning everything we do is for His good pleasure. So our purpose in life is pleasing the Lord. It's not to change the world. It's not to, to be a pastor. It's not to... Uh, be an evangelist. It's not to have a famous ministry uh, or to write books. Our purpose in life is one thing only, and that is to please God. And we please God through our obedience. We please God through being grateful for all that he's already done. We please God by Walking with Jesus, I say all the time on this program, just be with Jesus. We please God by caring for the people that he loves, by reaching out and ministering to the people that, uh, that he brings along our path. And that's our purpose. There's no other purpose, and this will be, Kevin, the most fulfilling life you can ever imagine. You know, we grow up uh, believing that we have a, a, a purpose in life. Um, that's something that God builds into our hearts. But we get distracted. I want to be a baseball player. I want to be a fireman. I want to be a cop. I want to be a teacher. I want to be a doctor or a lawyer. Whatever it is that you want to do, that's not your purpose. Now, if that's what you're doing, then live that life and, and work that life in order to please God. But remember always, Kevin, that just pleasing the Lord is the, the the thing that will trigger everything else in your life, every blessing. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. So that's our purpose. Our purpose isn't found in success. Our purpose isn't found uh, in getting married. Our purpose isn't found in being a parent and having children. Our purpose is found in one thing and one thing only. And that is, are we pleasing to God? Paul writes, that we're to find out what pleases the Lord. If that would be the mission statement of your life, uh, Kevin, I promise you, uh, your life will be so rich and full, um, you won't be able to, to thank God enough. Thanks for the question. Let's go to Converse and talk with Ron on line one. Ron, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
2: Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. It's so good to hear from you. Thank you. You're welcome, sir. Two quick items here. Uh, I know the Bible does say, I believe it does, um, that if all that was written about Jesus Christ was written and recorded, there would not be enough room in the world to hold these books. You recall (laughs) that?
1: I do, John 21.
2: John 21, okay. It, 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 actually, it. it
1: actually speaks of the miracles and all the other things that he did. If they wrote all those things down, there wouldn't be enough books mm. in the world to hold them. That's what he said.
2: Right. Okay, well, with that said, and um, the show that was just before you, uh, the Metaxas show, um, they, the subject matter was the probable authenticity of the Shroud of Turin. Uh, I don't know, I've always wondered, I probably always will wonder, and I earnestly wanted to hear your perspective, uh, Pastor Ron, on the on the Shroud of Turin, and uh, it would mean a lot to me, because it's always been a mystery, and I, I've never known, um, uh, I've heard, probably more. not so than probably so, as far mm-hmm. as it's often all- I guess we'll never know. Unless I don't think it's written about in the in the gospel. We know that 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 there was our our Christ was was tended to by his mother and Mary Magdalene, and it it must have been just a terrible moment to to clean up and to Mm. to do what they did. And I, I just I know that there was the the attention given to his body aftermath of it all after he had done what what he did for us and was 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 in his place at that moment and then as far as the aftermath and the shroud of Turin um, i just then your knowledge your depth yeah. and and sincerity and i'll take i'll take this off the phone pastor
1: Ron. And okay thank yes, you ron right now, I think, going to one minute left in this half of the program. So uh, let me just talk a little bit, and then I'll, I'll get to the Shroud of Turn question, uh, because we do know from the Bible whether or not it's it's authentic, and I will give you that information on the other side of the break. Let me just say this. Uh, I love that you are thinking about um, the the pathos of that moment. Uh, Mary Magdalene said show me where you put him she didn't know she was talking to Jesus show me where you put him and I'll go get him there were 75 pounds of spices on him in addition to his body weight but, but that's just the, the heart of faith hey, I gotta cut off now Ron so hang on and the other side of the break uh, I'll get to the answer hey three four zero ninety five eighty five or toll free 877-630-KSLR we'll be back in two minutes
0: Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
1: Welcome back to the second half of our program, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Uh, I'm, I'm responding to Ron's question about the Shroud of Turin. Uh, he was talking about the uh, the scene at the tomb. Um, uh, every one of us, we're we're getting ready now. We we're in Mark chapter thirteen on our Sunday studies, and of course Jesus is headed toward the cross. And, and these are such important Bible studies, and I try to tell our church all the time, Ron, to to put themselves in the scene. Imagine what it would have been like to go to the tomb with Mary. Magdalene and the other Marys. Imagine the the, the, the horror that Mary, his mother, uh, would have had to endure watching her son be beaten. Imagine watching uh, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who had been secret disciples up to that point, suddenly becoming bold uh, as they watch Jesus die. Uh, it, it's just a magnificent scene, and, and sometimes we just, we're so used to hearing it, I don't think we get the full impact of what was going on there. I try, when I'm teaching those chapters, to put uh, the people that I'm teaching right there at the tomb with them. Regarding the Shroud of Turn, Um and, and uh, let me just say, I'm not an Eric Metaxas fan, so um um I don't know I wasn't listening to the program and I don't know who he had uh but but uh the suggestion was that they were they were they were hinting that it was probably true that the shroud uh was was authentic. But but here's one where well, the Bible never says anything about the Shroud of Turin. Uh, It does give us information if we'll read our Bibles. John chapter 20, verse 6. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen, strips plural, lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth folded up, or the cloth was folded up, by itself, separate from the linen. Now, the shroud of Turin is a one-piece artifact, and we know automatically, Ron, that it cannot be authentic. Uh, there were there were at least two. It says strips is plural. There were at least two things, and they typically in the in the um, Old Testament days or New Testament days, biblical days, um, they would wrap a body with with strips of linen um tightly and and uh, you know some of the the, the mint and and uh, preservatives would've been there wrapped inside them so he would have been wrapped really really tightly um, and yet it says very clearly that he had a burial cloth that had been around his head that was separate from the other and that that it, the the disciples found it folded. I always tell our church, uh, the men in particular, see men. Jesus was neat. We want to be like Jesus. We got to be neat at home. Got to be tidy. And uh, but but you know the Shroud of turn discounts that altogether. So there were um, there was a, a burial cloth around his head, but there was also the strips of linen that that bound his body. So the Shroud of Turin, it is um, considered a holy relic. Uh, it, it's not. Um, I don't know what it is. Is it a counterfeit? Is it? I don't know what it is, but I know it's not true. It wasn't uh, adorning Jesus' uh, crucified body. That we know for sure. So it is not authentic at all. And all we have to do is know what the Bible says about that scene. Thank you for the question, Ron. I appreciate it. Good to hear from you again. Here is a question from our email inbox from Anonymous. And I was just talking about this in the first half of the program. Um, He says, my wife's aunt's boyfriend professed to be Christian, but he and his girlfriend are living together. Last time I was at his house, I let him know that it wasn't right for Christians to do this. Let me stop here. Uh, Anonymous, God bless you for doing that. You you care enough about this person um, that you want him to be right with God, and and not only is he not right with God, but he's allowing, uh, as we're going to read this, he's allowing the woman he's living with not to be right with God. He's causing her to stumble as well, and and, and I know we hate doing this, especially with family, but we've got to call people uh, to to account for these type of decisions. Um, So I I let him know it wasn't right for Christians to do this, and the conversation kind of ended at that. He gave me some reasons why it was beneficial for them to remain unmarried, essentially financially related reasons. I know we're not supposed to associate with Christians who live in the sin of sexual immorality, so I told my wife I wouldn't be going to his house anymore. My wife wife replied saying she isn't going to stop seeing family. Ultimately, I guess my questions are, what kind of blood family relationships does there have to be before we disassociate? Dad, blood brother, uncle cousin, third cousin. I know God says to honor your father and mother, uh, so I would think that the dissociation would be with everyone besides my parents. My second question is, should my wife be submitting to my biblical decision here instead of going alone to associate with this part of her family? Thank you. God bless you. Your direct, truthful answers in, uh, while still being gentle and loving, is something I'm seeking to imitate. Um, die flesh, he says. <laughs> yeah, d- indeed, die flesh. Uh, anonymous, there is a lot here in this, uh, in this email. Um, you know, one of the things that, that uh, r- r- it causes me physical pain, emotional pain for sure, but physical pain. Because I run into this all the time, and you'd be surprised. I run into it with older people who are living together because they're getting Social Security, or they're they're getting some sort of retirement program or disability program. And if they're married, then those those uh, benefits are reduced, or 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 cease altogether. And uh, um, you know, they say, "Well, well, I I know we should be married, but if we do that, how are we going to survive?" And I always ask them. What about faith? Where is faith? Without faith it's impossible to please God. If you're remaining unmarried because it's financially beneficial for you to do so. How much is it worth to sell Jesus out for? 3000 a month, 4000 a month or 300 or 400 a month. We're selling Jesus out for money. Judas did that selling him out for money. How is somebody who can do that, a Christian, moreover, an anonymous, the Bible says people who live like they're living will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's just that simple. And we've got to call them out, period. Now, I think there's some issues between you and your wife here. Um, whether it's an unequal yoking, or whether your wife is willing, for the sake of family, to sell Jesus out. Um, this is something that the two of you, with the Bible open, need to sit down and talk about. Not angrily, but you need to sit down and talk about it. I say all the time, Paul and I, when we're doing marriage counseling, we, we tell people, look, all the husband and wife have to do together is agree, to agree with God. How can we call ourselves a Christian if we're not willing to agree with God? And you're right. The Bible is very clear. Uh, I I warn you, brothers, not to associate with anyone called a believer who is engaged in this kind of lifestyle. Um, you, You love them. You confront them. Maybe you go back a second time. But if they're unwilling to change, unwilling to repent, then it says have nothing to do with that person. Have nothing to do with that person, and anonymous. This doesn't matter whether it's a father or a mother. Uh, It doesn't matter. Jesus said, "I came to divide families. I'll I'll turn a a, 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 a children against parents, parents against children, brother against brother, Um, because when we stand for God, there's going to be consequences. And what you and your wife really need to do is to sit down. Now, this is such an easy thing to resolve. I'm sure your wife loves the Lord." And if uh, I were talking to her and I would say, do you really love Jesus? And she would say, yes. I'd say, well, he said, if you love me, you'll obey me. And the word says this. Now the decision is you've got to choose between your family and Jesus. And you, and you need to tell them why you're doing it. No, we're not going to come over to your house. We're not going to associate with you because you say you're a Christian. Now, if they said they weren't Christian, it would be a completely different thing. If they're, if they're not professing believers then you'd want to go to their house. It would be an object for evangelism. You'd want to tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But these are people who claim to know Jesus Christ. And by associating with uh, her family, who's living in this kind of immorality, she's basically saying, oh, it's okay. You'll go to heaven anyway. When Galatians chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6 clearly say people that live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's that simple. In other words, they pretend to be one thing, and they're something else. So you and your wife, you need to resolve this. This is really, really important. And the time to do that, Anonymous, is when you're, you're in the Word together, and, and I trust you and your wife are reading the Word together, studying it together. Um, um, you can read these things in the Scriptures and talk about them. And in this particular case, because there is a very clear issue with very clear answers, you can say to your wife, I'm very troubled that you wouldn't submit to my leadership when I took a stand for Jesus and you just said, I'm not going to stop seeing family. Well, I didn't ask you to stop seeing family except those who are professing Christians and are living in willful sin. So how can you, a Christian, willfully disobey the word of God? Wives, well, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. This is the very thing Jesus would ask her to do. And it's for her family's interest. It's for their best. And I, if I were her, I'd be far more concerned about never seeing them again in eternity, than I would be about never seeing them again in this life unless they repent. And see, when we take a stand for Jesus, people finally see how important he really is to us. And I think sometimes our our walk is so compromised, like Lot's walk was compromised, he couldn't even save his wife, nor his sons-in-law. I think our lives are sometimes our walk with the Lord is so compromised at times that people just think that it doesn't matter much to us at all. And so this is a really important thing and it needs to be done. But let me also say this and then I'll I'll get off my soapbox here. Um, This applies to every relative. You're not honoring a father and a mother if they're living in sin. They, they're not exempt from the rules. So this is one of those things that you've got to decide, I'm going to stand for, I'm going to stand with Jesus. And if your wife refuses and you can't discuss this rationally and reasonably, then I think this is a uh, an area where you need to go to your pastor and um, get some counseling, get some marriage counseling. Uh, in my message yesterday, we were talking about People who are, I'm sorry, this wasn't in my message yesterday. I did the Pastor's Discipleship class Saturday. That's when I was talking about this. Uh, There there are people who um, call themselves Christians, who choose human relationships over our relationship with Jesus Christ all the time. And it is a tragedy. It's one of the reasons why our witness is so impotent in this world. We are just too compromised. So, um, yeah, if it's your father and your mother, um, same rules apply. Doesn't matter who it is. If and it, it doesn't have to be family. Uh, it could be your next door neighbor. It could be a friend. It could be somebody that you've known for years and years and years. I have nothing to do with someone who claims to belong to Christ, who is living in rebellion against Him. That's simply not true. And you're the one, Anonymous, who is loving your family. Your wife, by not honoring your request, is not loving her family at all. So I hope that makes sense. Thank you very much for the question. Here is a question from Scott from our mobile app. Uh, in his epistle to the Romans, what does Paul mean by am um, obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks? In chapter 1, verse 14, isn't he primarily talking to Romans? Uh, what's the relationship between Romans to Greeks to Gentiles? Um, let me read the passage, and then I'll, uh, I'll answer the question, Scott. Um, beginning verse 13, says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, how often I planned to come to you, but have been prevented from visiting until now in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. Then he says this, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Um, the, the the idea of Greeks to Gentiles, he's just making a difference between Jew and Greek. Some translations say, um, I'm obligated to both Greeks and Jews. Um, but but the idea is is I'm gonna I'm obligated. I owe it to everybody to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I love the fact that the Apostle Paul truly, truly felt that obligation. Uh he felt like he was cheating people, that he owed them something and he wasn't paying his debt if he wasn't sharing the gospel. That's why he always wanted to go where the, the gospel had not been preached. But in Rome, there was a large population of Jews, and there was a, a huge population of Gentiles. And so Paul is simply saying, I'm making no distinction. My my goal, I'm obligated to, to declare the gospel to Jew and Greek alike. And that's the only difference that's indicated, Scott, in that passage of Scripture. And again, because he considered an obligation, uh, he would consider himself being faithless if in fact he wasn't doing that. And that was what motivated, even though he didn't plant the church in Rome, um, he knew people there, obviously, but he'd never been able to go to Rome, sort of the center of the world in in that day. Um, he, he said, I'm eager to go there because I have an obligation to do it. I was asked recently, Scott, why I give invitations Uh, every time I'm I'm preaching. And I do that whether it's a Friday night or a Wednesday night or Sunday. Uh, I do it differently in each of the services because we have different uh, prayer setups. But uh, I always give an invitation. And somebody said, why do you do it? You know, it makes people uncomfortable and it makes the service go longer. And my response is because I owe it to people. It's a debt, an obligation that I have. My obligation is first to God, But my obligation secondarily is to the people who are here. You know, one of the great things about our church is everybody knows if they bring somebody in their family or somebody in their neighborhood, somebody from their work to Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, that person is going to hear the gospel and they're going to get an opportunity to respond to it. And that's why our church is so active and so effective in bringing new people. We get visitors all the time. Um, no exaggeration, this is probably an understatement, but, but we're, we've got 30, 40 new people who, every Sunday. And people are free to invite them because they know they're going to be asked to receive Jesus Christ. They've been sharing with them, and so they're going to give the Holy Spirit a chance in the corporate setting to to minister to them as well. So, Scott, it's just Jews and non-Jews is what's in view there. And, again, Paul considered it an obligation. I love that question. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to Isabel from San Antonio on line one. Isabel, thanks for calling. You're on the air. I mean, I've is heard it? you say in the past that...
2: Can you
1: hear me? I can hear you. Okay.
2: Um I've heard you say in the past that um, no one can lose their salvation. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I have a family member that uh, no longer wants to attend church because of past experiences, you know, with ministries and stuff like that, um, they no longer want to attend a church. So therefore, um, are they considered saved? Because they have no conviction
1: of not attending church? Yeah. Isabel, that's a tough question because the dynamic is so painful. When people get hurt in church, um, the devil really, really pours it on. And he's continually pushing buttons. And it's like, well, you know, I went to church and and, and the people there were not nice to me. and, and, And unbelieving friends, they're nicer to me than Christians are. And the devil really, really stokes that fire. Now let me say this, if the person that you're talking about was ever really saved, and that's a question they need to ask themselves, examine your heart daily, Paul said, to see whether or not you're in the faith. And I always tell somebody if they don't want to come to church, when Jesus is here, Revelation chapter 1 makes it clear that Jesus is in the church, that's where he's pouring out his his spirit and the gifts. Uh, if somebody doesn't want to come to church, I, I I always ask them. So so what makes you think you're a Christian? If you're really a Christian, you'd want to go to church. Now the reality is, there's a lot of people who simply will not get over the fact that they've been hurt in church, or their their feelings have been hurt or abused in church. Um, uh, it could it's not the church's it's not the the, the Lord's fault. Maybe they're in a bad church. Maybe they were taken advantage of financially. Who knows? But uh, God knows. Galatians chapter 6 says, God will not be mocked. He knows those who are his. Um, what I want to encourage people to do is to examine deeply whether or not they really belong to him. And I, I would just ask this person in your life, I would just say, well, well, if you don't want to go to church, that is, is Jesus tells us to do it. Hebrews 10.25 says, Do not forsake the assembling together of the saints. You don't want to go to church because you've been hurt, but God says to go. Jesus said, If you love me, you will obey me. Are you really a Christian? And, and, and I'd press it a little farther. If they, well, of course I'm a Christian. I've always been a Christian. Well, what makes you think if you're not doing what Jesus says to do? If you're not trusting him, what makes you think you're a Christian? And that's your job. Isabel, the, your job is to 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 just let the Holy Spirit have an opportunity to ask the question. And uh, if they were ever really saved, then they still are. And I know a lot of Christians who have made really bad choices and backslidden a long, long way away from the Lord. That the entire book of Hebrews is written for people like this. Um, and uh, obviously what we want to do is rightly represent the Lord and um, pray for them so that they'll get back on that place in the will of God. At the very least, these are Christians who are are completely outside of the will of God, completely outside of the ability of God to bless their walk. There's no power in their walk. Uh, there's no intimacy. There's no passion in their walk. Uh, Paul is going to say, uh, in chapter 5 uh, to the Thessalonians I'm um, doing that on Friday um um never let your 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 zeal don't quench the spirit never be lacking in zeal and these people at the very best are lukewarm Christians who've lost their way um whether or not they're really saved isabel is between them and God you don't know you can't tell but we approach people the way I suggested so that the Holy Spirit will have an opportunity to, to start knocking on the door of their heart and saying, hey, come back home, come back home. Thank you, Isabel. That's one of the really hard things. You know, somebody goes to church and they don't like what happens or somebody looks at them the wrong way and they're not in the right mood. It's like, oh, I'm never coming to church again because I never have been treated so badly. We had somebody do that not too long ago. Uh, because we ask them to take their children who are being disruptive. We ask them to take their children to children's ministry. I mean, we, we want to proclaim the Word of God. We want to be able to provide an environment, an atmosphere where we can do that. Um, the reality is um, that if they come to church to get offended, they're going to be offended. And if they stop coming to church, it demonstrates that they're really, really not part of what Jesus calls his church. They're on the outside looking in. Does that mean they're not saved? Only God knows. We, we can't know for sure. Church is the one place that Christians, real believers, ought to be. So I hope that makes sense to you. Thank you very, very much. Remember, a quick reminder tonight, we've got our men's, women, and youth Bible studies at 7 p.m. Uh, Elvira Garcia, who is the wife of Pastor Chris Garcia from uh, Michoacan, Mexico, will be sharing um, their experience. And it's been hard. And she'll share it with a smile on her face, enjoying her heart, I promise. Hey, thanks for tuning in. I'll be back tomorrow, Lord willing, on AM 630 The Word at 4 o'clock. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you then.
0: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com.